Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This episode of Silent Giants is brought to you by Ali. Ali, powered by Verizon locations, are developed by Verizon, the world's leading technology company. In collaboration with Ali, a membership-only community workspace for creators. Each location is a community curated powered by the emerging technologies and thought leadership of Verizon. With Ali, Verizon is bridging the gap between startup and corporation by helping the community workspace build next-level ecosystems for entrepreneurs. And now, on to my interview with Bill Bentley. Somehow all this is going to work out. It's like faith. You know, it's like, I think life is faith-driven. Whatever your faith is, is just, it's going to be okay. How can you think otherwise? Otherwise, otherwise. Yeah, yeah, check it out. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Uh, yeah. Everybody tuning in, you invited, you invited. No matter what mood you in, get excited, get excited. Everybody love the music, let me tell you how they do it. Whether writer or an agent, let me tell you how they made it. You are now talking to a silent giant. Wanna walk in their shoes, silent giants. Wanna study they moves, silent giants. Wanna know what they do, silent giants. Silent giants, y'all. Welcome to another episode of the Silent Giants podcast, a podcast that highlights the superstars behind the scenes of popular culture. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at at Silent Giants podcast. And to keep up with my life, music and more, be sure to follow me as well at at Corey Cambridge. This week's Silent Giant is legendary music executive and publicist Bill Bentley. In this interview, I flew out to Los Angeles to chat with Bill about his early life in Texas, getting his start as music editor of the Austin Sun, his move to L.A., which led him to become music editor for the L.A. Weekly, director of publicity at Slash Records, and how he rose to become senior vice president of media relations at Warner Brothers Records. Bill has worked closely as a publicist for icons like Neil Young, Lou Reed, and countless others. This interview is filled with amazing stories about iconic music acts like Prince and George Harrison, and Bill provides amazing advice and perspective for folks looking to break into the industry. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to the music industry executive, publicist, editor, author, my friend, the silent giant, Bill Bentley. All right, we'll do a little sound check. One, two, one, two, one, two. One, two, one, two, one, two. Yeah, three, sound- four. You sound good. Five, six, seven. Is that okay? Like right about here? Man, you sound great. Okay. You're a naturalist. I'm not going to squeak though. No, no. You, you be yourself. <laughs> okay, man. <laughs> uh, so uh, you should definitely have a podcast. No question. Oh, uh, thanks. You have a podcast voice. Uh, you know, I did a radio show back in the eight, uh, excuse me, the 70s in Austin. Uh, I was a, a publicist at Austin City Limits TV show. Okay. And we were in the same building at the University of Texas with the radio station. So one day I just asked him, could I do a radio show? And the guy that ran the station, yeah, you know, we need people to do shows. So I started this show mainly about soul music. And there's a song I love called Twine Time. Okay. And we would start the show every week with the song goes, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, it's twine time. (laughs) 
And so I left and after doing the show for two years, I left in 1980 and gave it to a man named Paul Ray who did it for the next uh, 35 years. Okay. Okay. He Is passed it... away recently, but he kept twine time on the air. You've got some experience. I, I tried, man. <laughs> <laughs> you're a humble guy. I tried. You're, you're a natural at this. Well, what's better than playing music for people? You know, I mean, like oh. either on the bandstand or writing about it or on a radio, just spreading the love of music. I, you know, if, if I had a calling or a, a passion in life, that's it. That's the one. Uh, uh, growing up at Texas, like, what kind of music were you into? Man, you're not going to believe this. It was 1955. I was five years old, and I turned on the radio one day and heard Hound Dog by Elvis Presley. Yeah. And it just, it it completely tore the top of my head off. I got the single, the grocery store, got really deep into buying all of his singles till about 57 when he went in the Army, and he got out of the Army, and I heard one song, and I went like, ain't no more Elvis for me. Have it, you seen it was different. He changed so much. Yeah. So I, by then, uh, when we would drive around Houston in the 50s, going to pick up my dad, who worked at night at a newspaper, we'd be his, uh, the newspaper was on a strip of, uh, it was on a, a street called Dowling, and there's a strip of black nightclubs right there. So we'd park out in front of his newspaper office, and there'd be like, down the street, you'd, you'd see like Lightning Hopkins and Albert Collins. Who's that? Lightning Hopkins? He was like the main Texas blues guy of all time. Oh, seriously. wow. Okay. So, yeah, and, and we were just kids, but we would hear this stuff. And so I got drawn into blues pretty deep. And these guys, during the day, you'd be driving around Houston in some areas, and you'd see them playing on the street, just sitting on chairs on the sidewalk, man. They had these places called ice houses, which is where they sold ice. Because in the old days, you know. Oh, the block ice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They weren't yeah. refrigerators. So, you know, you'd have to buy <laughs> ice and put it in your ice box. And, and Lightning and those guys would be sitting out in front of there playing uh, playing blues, you know, acoustic guitar blues, and just sitting on the street playing, man. It was so, and there's a guy named Juke Boy Bonner, and he set up a little rig where he had a bass drum that he would kick, he had a guitar that he played, and he had a harmonica on a rack. He was like a one-man band. And so we just, I don't know, I just, I fell in love with that music so deep, man. It just, you know, I kind of felt like Elvis had abandoned me. Yeah. But then like the blues guys, I was by eight or nine by then. Yeah. Why, why did you feel like Elvis abandoned you? And when he, sonically? When, he, when he got out of the army, man, he just, he just didn't have that edge anymore. And I remember, you know, I'd liked his early movies like King Creole mm -hmm. uh, and love me tender. I loved and loving you. And then, you know, I went to see his first movie, I guess it was about 1960 and it was called GI blues. And they kind of made him into like, just, you know, not the guy that had any uh, sort of danger or even rock and roll in him. Mm. I think it was because his mama died, man. I saw a picture of Elvis when he, he got to leave to leave his post in Germany to go home when his mom died. Yeah. And it just like looked like the spirit had left him. You know, I, I don't think he ever became as great as that uh, that first little period in the 50s again. You know what's, what's funny, Bill, is I was having a, a conversation with some friends about, about Kanye West. Mm -hmm. You know, Kanye West's mom uh, passed away. And I said that he's going through his Elvis period of his life. Wow, it's that's a, it. It's a lot of similarities between, you know, uh, the the drug abuse, mm -hmm. gaining weight, mm -hmm. not having your mom around, losing direction. He completely lost it. And yeah. He, and he had a manager, you know, that was questionable and what he really looked out for for Elvis as opposed to, you know, like advancing the art form instead of concentrating on just the making commercial as aspects. much money as humanly possible. Right. I heard once that Elvis's manager got 50% of his oh, income. Oh, Yeah. I doubt if that's legal these days. <laughs> uh, I don't think it was legal then. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so wait, but, so, but you, you know, losing Elvis was it's like, I always look back at like in the fifties, Elvis was sort of like my power figure. He was the guy I looked to, to make me feel like I was home.
Yeah. And like kids nowadays have, you know, power figures or video games or whatever, but Elvis was my guy. I just, you know, bought all the records. I watched him on TV. I went to all the movies. He's the only guy that made any sense to me in the fifties. The fifties were a weird time, you know, down in Texas, segregation was terrible. You know, the, uh, you know, it was just a strange place to live. If you felt you wanted to be like an open, loving person, you know, there's a lot of shit going on down there that wasn't cool. And I just wanted to find a spot where I felt right, you know, about my life and who I could grow up and hopefully be. And Elvis gave me that. And then the blues guys, Lightning Hopkins and Juke Boy Bonner, uh, Clifton Chenier, the Zydeco guy. I saw him once in the fifties yeah. and it just, I just saw something in them that was so full of feeling and reality and based kind of, you know, music is based in love. Really. If you really just whittle it down to what it is, mm -hmm. I think it's people trying to share their love of something with other people. Did, did your, um, parents, uh, have a love of music? No, from, but man, family? they thought I was crazy, you know, cause I was, <laughs> I was starting to go to all over town and the places they were like, where are you going, man? I said, I got to go find this stuff. But you know, they always backed me. They never said they're very liberal people. Yeah. In fact, I'll tell you a quick, funny story. When John Kennedy ran for president in 1960, my dad, we supported him. Now in Texas, wasn't very popular. Right? He was a Catholic, which was automatically made him very suspect. So every, uh, he would put a uh, Kennedy for president sign on our tree in the front yard every day in the morning. Somebody would come by at night and torn it in half and threw it on the ground. Wow. So one day my dad being like a tough Texan, he lined it with the razor blades all around the uh, poster towards the edge. So whoever grabbed it that <laughs> night, cut their hand and it, it wasn't even off the tree, man. There's like blood on it. So he went around the neighborhood for the next week looking for people that were bandaged. <laughs> that is hilarious. But you know, he taught me like, if you believe in something, don't let anybody back you down on it. Mm. You know, and he was a big Kennedy supporter and he's like, no, I'm not going to be cowed by people in our neighborhood telling me who I can and can't vote for. So yeah, I learned right then, like, if you really want to go for something, just go for it. You know, like there's no rules as long as you do it, you know, with a good heart. And that's the way I went after all the music I ever loved. And 1963, my brother uh, took me to a big black nightclub called the Palladium Ballroom to see James Brown. Whoa. Tell me about that. Oh, that that's the one that changed my life. You know, we'd gotten the live at the Apollo record by James Brown in 63. Yeah. And there's just something, something in that record that felt like a religious experience to me. It was because it was like, kind of like church you know, what he did to the audience at the Apollo. So James Brown came to play the Palladium in 63. And so, you know, I kind of talked my brother into taking me with him. And I tell you what, man, we walked in that club and I felt like I'd been waiting my whole entire 13 year old life to see this show. The band started, you know, Bobby Bird came out and sang. a couple other singers came out and then Brown came out. And for the next three hours, just, it was church, you know, the dancing, the singing, the just, you know, on his knees and it just, it really changed the core of who I was and showed me the power of music to totally transform what you felt like. Now, I, f I felt like I was on a cloud. I uh, really did. Now, did you ever want to pursue music as a career like on stage? Well, here's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. So, you know, James Brown, 63, the next, uh, Starting in early 64, the Rollings, the Beatles came and I love the Beatles, you know, obviously because they were just different. Yeah. And then I uh, heard the Rolling Stones on the radio and I just went like, that's it. You know, that's not that far from blues. It was by guys that kind of look like me. Mm -hmm. So I started uh, listening to it and watching them on TV and I keyed in on the drummer, Charlie Watts, because I thought I was kind of shy. I said, I, I can't be on the front line, man. But Charlie, if you watch Charlie play, 
he never did anything. He just sat there and played, man. So I started, I got a snare drum for Christmas one year. The next year I got a drum set, exact same brand and color as Charlie Watts. Okay. I started dressing like Charlie Watts. <laughs> I had my little haircut like Charlie you Watts. You were Charlie Watts. I know, man. <laughs> so uh, when I was still going to the black clubs to see music, you know, there's a show on TV called The Man From Uncle. And there's a young guy on it, uh, David McCollum, who went by the name Ilya Kuryakin on the show. So my nickname in the clubs was Kuryakin because I kind of <laughs> had the same haircut. As, hey, Kuryakin, what's going on? Because how, how old are you at this time? I was 15. Okay. Oh, but, you're young. Oh, man. But, you know, the show, the show, by then, Otis Redding was coming, Aretha Franklin. Everybody was coming to this club in Houston, man. Houston was a huge center for music. Bobby Bland, Bobby Bland's record label, Duke Records, was based in Houston. Okay. First record label owned by uh, a black person before Motown. Wow. Yep. Uh, man's name was Don Roby. So yeah, I, I I got into playing drums enough to where I realized I wasn't good enough to go all the way. You know, I could play. It wasn't I was in bands, but I knew I didn't have that thing you need if you're gonna turn it into something other than a hobby. Mm. So that's kind of when I switched over to writing about music because I figured, well, if I can't I can't really stick with the playing forever, if I can learn how to write about it, maybe I could find a way to stay a part of it. Okay. Because, you know, when you're writing about music, you get to go to the shows, you get to go during the day and interview the artists, you get to hang out, and you really felt like, you know, you get sometimes stand on stage. You kind of felt like you're part of the whole thing instead of just being in the audience, which was so much fun to be in the audience, but I wanted to get closer. And, and also, too, uh, the, the medium of writing during that time period, you were able to have influence That's right. right over how people perceive the music, right? That's right. In your opinion That's exactly maker. right. Yeah. That's exactly right, because... You know, Rolling Stone magazine was the first magazine came started in 67 that I thought like, wow, you know, there, there could be a serious magazine about music that could really teach us all about it. So, you know, I never got to write for Rolling Stone then, but I'd started college in 68 and uh, started writing for the college paper. Where, where'd you go to school? I started in Georgetown, Texas, uh, a college called Southwestern University. A little bit of a mistake for me. I got arrested for marijuana in 68 at college. Really? Yeah. I had a joint and the Texas Rangers kicked in my door and arrested me. For one me joint? For one joint. I, it was a felony. Wow. Five to life. Five they to life. They charge you with a felony? I'm, I'm a convicted felon, man. For a joint? A joint. I got five years and uh, through a little arrangement with the court that involved change of money, I got five years probation for a joint. But, you know, people going to prison for it then. So- Wow. But it kind of like screwed up my college career a little bit. So I ended up in Austin in 1970. And that's truly, you know, from from mistakes and hardship, great things comes by going to Austin that year. That changed everything. And I got to uh, I got to start being a typesetter for the daily paper in Austin. And then a friend of mine started a newspaper there in 74. And he said, well, if you'll be the typesetter, I'll let you be the music editor, too. I go like, really? And he goes, yeah. I said, well, I'm not really a, a trained writer. And he goes like, that's okay. These clowns that you're going to be working with aren't either. We're just going to wing it. So we started a paper called the Austin Sun in 1974. And man, Austin was exploding with music then. Yeah. Ex explain, because this is early Austin. So It's early Austin, like, man. But why do you think that Austin became a, a music hub and a music city? Two simple reasons. The economy there is really revolves around the University of Texas and the state capitol. Now, the University of Texas back then, you know, 50,000 students go there. So they have this huge population of students who want to see music. And when they graduate, they don't leave. 
So Austin just it became like this youth capital of America, really, and it's sort of like between the coasts. So all the artists that were going back and forth from New York to L.A. and San Francisco would stop in Austin and play gigs. So I got to see I got to see once the Grateful Dead in 1968. They were on their way to a pop festival in Florida. They played a 200 seat nightclub in Houston. Wow. Just, you know, just a little itty bitty place, man. I asked one of them once, I said, why did y'all stop in Houston? He goes like, Phil, I can't remember where we were yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> There's not one of them in that crowd. And I've done a lot of research that remembers playing this club called the Catacombs in December of 1968. Because uh, oftentimes I'll always say in my interviews that, you know, we when you're living in the present, you don't know when things are special. That's right. Um, did you know at the time that Austin was like, this is a really cool scene? Or did you just feel like, oh, this is home? You know what? I've started feeling in the 60s, seeing all the soul greats, mm -hmm. that I was being given a gift that would probably never come again. Wow. Now, you would hope it would last forever. Now, in Houston at the time, I have to say this, 1968, when Dr. King was killed, it ended integration for in terms of us who were like really going out of our way to experience a lot of the black culture. But it just, you know, it just felt different after that. And mm. things started changing. And, you know, that's kind of when I went off to college. But I think at the time, all through my life, I've known how special just these uh, really experiences were because I love music so much. I knew the power of music. I knew enough about it to when I would watch the greats play it, just how how amazing their talents were. And I, I, always, like, I got to see Count Basie Band once. I just went like, this is like a once in a lifetime experience. Like there will be a handful of people who saw Count Basie in 30 years that remember it. And wow. just night after night, man, every, just in, in Austin, I can't even remember nights I wasn't seeing music. And it was just starting in small clubs and then it got bigger and then that blues club opened called Antones, uh, the Armadillo World Headquarters. There must have been, even in the 70s, like 15 active clubs every night where good music was in it, like really good music. Wow. I remember one time I just moved to Austin and uh, this man named Kenneth Threadgill, who's one of the early uh, sort of, uh, founders of acoustic music in Austin. You know, he ran a, a gas station that he let people play in. And one of the people that used to play at his gas station in 62, 63 was Janis Joplin. So, and in, in when I first got there in 70, one of the first nights I went to, they had a party for Mr. Threadgill, the older man, and she flew in from Hawaii, summer of 1970, sat down on a bale of hay and played some acoustic songs for him. She was dead four months later. But, you know, that was like, I was in Austin, I was just like, where in the world else are you going to see Janis Joplin sitting on a bale of hay playing music? And I just went like the whole time in Austin, it was like night after night of that. I can't even, you know, hanging out with Captain Beefheart and just getting to know all these great artists who were coming to Austin and just wanting to be a part of it through interviewing them. Yeah. And then, you know, they probably thought, well, this kid ain't so bad for a Texan. You know, they, <laughs> <laughs> so we'd go, out me. To, we'd go out the next day or if they were in town, you know, it was sort of like I just became buddies with them. And then there's this great Texas musician named Doug Somm. In the 60s, he'd had hits with his band, the Sir Douglas Quintet. Okay. They were from San Antonio, but they're pretending to be English because, you know, it was the era of the Beatles. Okay. So, so he moved to San Francisco in the uh, 66 and hung out in the hate with the Grateful Dead and all these people. But he came back to Austin in 71, and we just fell in together, man. And knowing Doug Somm probably had one of the greatest effects on me of anything because Bob Dylan would come to Austin to stay at Doug's house. You know, Jerry Garcia, all these guys that just, they love Doug Som, and he was sort of like my big brother, and he taught me so much about music, but also he exposed me to all these people. Jerry Wexler, the great producer, 
would come down and hang out in Austin with Doug. Dr. John would come down and hang out with Doug. So I was just like part of this crowd. You know, you look over there, be sitting there with Dylan, Doug, Dr. John, Jerry Wexler, just on and on and on. And that was, Doug and I eventually started a record com company together right before he died in 1999. So he was like, he was sort of like my, um, my mentor. I, I can see you being a cool dude down there. You kind of have this like uh, uh, Michael Texas Michael Douglas vibe. <laughs> well, you know, I tell you, I I never presumed, you know, I was anything but what I was, which was really kind of like a fan. Yeah. And and I, but I wasn't a cloying fan. You know, I just I was a real fan. And and musicians, you know, they love fans, especially if you don't get in the way. Mm. You know, the trick I learned being a publicist all those years with some of the really big stars. Just, you know, don't insert yourself in places where you shouldn't, but always, you know, be respectful of the artist and that they're the creator. You know, mm -hmm. you, we, we, I was there to help them, but, you know, by becoming their friend, they enjoyed having a loyal person around who would help, you know, keep them real. The, uh, let's go back to your writing career. Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's so, what it was. So uh, how long were you a, a writer in, in Austin? Was it the Austin Sun? Austin Sun. Yep. I stayed there and then I went to work for the Austin City Limits TV show and was a publicist for them for a couple of years. Okay. And then one day, this is a good story. I was, Austin is starting, well, they just doubled my rent and I was a little upset about that. They you know? doubled your rent? Yeah. I went from like $95 to like $180. No, that's not legal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> There's not a lot legal in Austin back then. It wasn't a consumer friendly, friendly place, let's say. But, uh, so anyway, so I was, I, I'd known a couple of young kids and I'd been in a band I'd been playing drums with a band called, uh, Leanne and the Bizarros, which had just broken up. They doubled my rent, but I was going to start a new band with these two young boys, uh, friends of the band, uh, Will and Charlie Sexton. They're little, little, really young guys. And I was, we were practicing in my living room and I get a call from a guy in LA and goes like, I'm starting a newspaper in LA and we need a music editor and a couple of your friends from Texas out here recommended you. And it was the LA weekly. So okay. like right out of the blue, I they get, will you come out here? You know, I can give you like 75 bucks a week to work. And I go like, well, let's see uh, rents high. I don't have the best job right now. And I've never been to LA. Yeah. I said, I'll come out and move out there in the LA weekly. I was a music editor right at a time when the LA scene was exploding with like X and the Go-Go's and the Blasters and those Lobos, just these endless litany of bands out here. And it was like Austin and there was, there was out here, there's like 50 clubs every night. And as the music editor of a new newspaper that, you know, all the clubs wanted coverage, I just got to go everywhere for free again. This is what year is this? That was 1980. Okay. Was 19, so I drove out here in 1980, started working at the weekly, you know, and the record labels thought like, well, here's a new newspaper. We can, uh, Hey, you want to go to New York and see such and such? You know, I started taking all these trips on the record company's dime and I go like, this is legal. <laughs> but it was so much fun because the bands were great. You know, the eighties just kicking off in the eighties were a really, really good year for rock and roll. Cause the new wave thing had happened, you know, with Elvis Costello and talking heads and all, and they were still like, like on top. And there's all these new young LA bands that I got to write about that really in LA people didn't know about. But one of the great things about those early years for me in LA, 1980, 81, 82, I met a man who was a booking agent whose whose clients were like Big Joe Turner, Roy Brown, Roy Milton, Etta James, Esther mm. Phillips, Ruth Brown. And and you know, nobody had ever written about them in LA. So I got to be the guy at my paper. You know, I'd go over to Big Joe Turner's house and he'd he'd tell me about the the thirties and forties, you know, when Charlie Parker was in Kansas City and his old career. And I just became like a um almost like a zealot for the people who really invented rhythm and blues. 
mm. you know, like really invented it. And yeah. then they, and that in turn, of course, invented rock and roll. So I, I just got to be part of this scene and they'd been so ignored. They were ecstatic that somebody cared enough to come to their house and write about them. And, and tell me about the move uh, uh, to, tell me the story of moving from Austin to LA. Okay. Well, it, it, it was, it was pretty low rent. I had a 65 Chrysler with bad tires. So the only thing I did was put new tires on it, crammed all my stuff, which wouldn't much into my car and just drove out here and looked in the newspaper and found a place to live. And what, what neighborhood did you move to? Uh, I moved up. This was a little bit of a mistake. I moved up onto a hill up in Mount Washington. And when my car died, finally, I started having to use the bus. It took me like three buses to get home to this house on a hill. <laughs> <laughs> like the summer I got out here, the first summer I was there, I woke up one morning and all the clothes were swinging back and forth in my closet. And I, the house started shaking up on this hill and it was an earthquake. And I go like, I'm getting off the hill, man. Yeah. Like, I do not want to be on the hill when the crowd, I mean, when the ground breaks. So I moved down into Holly, West Hollywood and uh, got another car and just started going everywhere, everywhere, man. And I got to be really, you know, again, just for some reason, friends with the musicians. You know, I was, I would just, uh, we'd start hanging out, you know, they'd have parties at their houses and stuff and just got to be uh, in a scene. I, I love scenes when they're starting, you know, before the people get big because, it's not that people change, but you know, when your life gets real complicated, you don't have much time anymore. Right. Then you kind of have to start worrying about how you look and what you say. And, you know, and sometimes you get groomed and it just, it kind of all changes. But back then that early scene, you know, people call it punk in LA then, but it really wasn't just punk because there was so much different music around that. I just felt like I'd again knew that I'd stumbled into this, uh, just wonderland. And so I did, I did that. I'd worked at the weekly for about three years and then a friend of mine said Slash Records needed a publicist. And Slash was the great L.A. label. You know, they had X. They had the Germs. They'd uh, signed the Blasters. Just this wonderful, like, they signed Los Lobos. And I thought, like, well, you know, I was a, I'd never done publicity for a, a record label, but I thought, like, yeah. if I was a writer, it's part of what I do anyway. So I started doing it. And pardon me, how did you make the transition from being a writer to a publicist? Like, how did that opportunity come about? You know, because when you're a publicist, you're hanging with writers. So you get to see how you know, like it all works. And I thought like, well, as a writer, you know, I got to see how publicists treated me. And I thought like, you know, I'm not, I can do this because really all you're doing as a publicist is spreading the word of what's good okay, and then asking for coverage. But the number one thing about publicity is pray to God, you have great bands to work with because that's when all the writers want to cover your bands, you know? So okay. I'd always been lucky in my whole career as a publicist. Let's see, let's just say, you know, 30 years as a publicist, I never worked with any bad bands. I mean, I just, I just got just given the key because Slash had great bands. And then at one point uh, in the 84s, uh, Warner Brothers Records bought Slash. Okay. So they asked me if I wanted to come to Warner Brothers. And I thought like, well, you know, I love Slash. But then I thought you know, the majors, man, if you're like a ball player, you want to get to the majors. So I, I took the job at Warner Brothers in... When was it? 86. And, and what is the job of a music publicist for a record label? Like, what is the number one job? You know, make sure you cultivate relationships with writers who will write about your bands or put them on TV shows or sometimes, you know, do radio interviews. OK, we, we didn't we didn't get the airplay, but like on public radio and stations like that, we were responsible for getting the writers on the air. Okay. So it's, it's number one. You're exposing the artist. And then hopefully being good enough at what you do to get that to result in like major coverage. 
no, the, at the back then the top of the line was, you know, get your artists on the, the Tonight Show, get your artists on the cover of Rolling Stone. You know, those were like the top things you could do. MTV had kind of taken over by then, which I never really fit in with MTV because labels had their own departments that worked with MTV. But to me, MTV, you know, unless it was a news thing, I wasn't always that big a fan of it. Cause well, I why is that? I think, I think the videos showed too much of what they thought the song was about. And it took away the imagination of what you thought the song was about or you thought the artist looked like. It just mm. almost gave you too much. And then mm. it became kind of a manipulation of what the video wanted you to think. And I just noticed it, it really took sort of the mystery out of music. I think the greatest thing in the world is when you're alone listening to a song on the radio or your stereo. And you know what? You get to, you get to make up whatever you think it is. You know, you get to really feel like, well, that's the way that person looks, or that's the way they're moving, or it's almost like reading a book. It, it like is. You can paint you your know, own imagination. That's around right. And I think image. some of the great books are better than the movies they make of them. And I thought always, I always thought music was more than what the videos. The videos were kind of like commercials, you know. And I, I just, you know, commercials are for selling things more than they are for really expanding your consciousness. Very few videos made the songs better. That's what I noticed. You know what? what uh, this is a, a fascinating point that I want to bring mm. up uh, because generally when when there's a, there's a, a podcast that I love called uh, Pessimist Archive, mm -hmm. you should check it out. My okay. friend Jason Pfeiffer uh, is the host and it's about the fear of technology. Mm -hmm. And so it, talk, it talks about, you know, the umbrella and then it's like the fear because <laughs> now we just, you know, we don't think about the umbrella. We just right. use it. But back in the day, there was the fear of the umbrella or the horseless carriage. That's right. Um, what was the, the feeling like? Uh, was there a, a big fear? What was the culture like around the music video at that time? Was there like people like raving about it? Was there tension? Was there negative tension amongst the music community? I, at the label, for sure, it was like this incredible uh, chance to expose your artist in a monstrous way and make a pile of money. So they they were making videos, three, four, five, six hundred thousand dollars to make a video because they could get it on MTV and sales went through the roof. Mm. It was like probably the advent of radio. You know, whenever you got your songs on radio and they're big hits sales, that's, that's what drove sales. So they looked at the, I'd say the eighties on MTV as really being the controlling thing of who they, the labels were appealing to, to try to expose their music. Now the artists were always a little, uh, you know, a lot of them were very suspicious of it because they felt like they were being put in a box where just the visual thing was what mattered more than the music. Okay. And so they didn't really go for that. The really the the great example of that, I remember I used to work with a band called The Replacements, and they wouldn't make a video. And you know, the labels like tearing their hair out and then threatening them, like, well, you have to make a video. So finally they said, Okay, we'll make a video. And you know what the video was? What? Two speakers in a room playing their song. <laughs> it was like a live performance. They weren't in it. They weren't in it. No way. No, it was, it was like two speakers playing their song and they turned it in. They made themselves like here's your video. And it was just like, Oh my God, those replacements, you know, you can't work with them, blah, blah, blah. You know, they're bad people. They won't help us. You, you know, what? Uh, another thing that kind of popped in my head that I want to ask you about is, did it change the way that music was sold? Like by being youth driven because it, MTV was a youth driven network. A lot of it did. I mean, the, the, the bands that got signed were the bands that were video friendly and would fit on MTV. That became mm -hmm. like nowadays, the big thing in signing bands is like, well, how many, Facebook friends that they have or how many Spotify or views or on YouTube 
that's that's i mean when i when i was still in a and r trying to sign a man it's like well how many likes do they have how many views do they have on spotify it, it wasn't listening to the music and back then it became so visually driven for mtv especially in the 80s that that was what the heads of a lot of labels thought like are we going to sign this band well what do they look like what kind of videos can they make okay and i think that when, when the great great artists came along like let's say prince i mean they knew how great he was and they let him do what he wanted to but a lot of his appeal at the early time was videos oh yeah movies because, yeah and then he made the <laughs> movie. movie you know warner films did not want to contribute to that movie warner brothers records had to put in most of the money for prince to make that movie because they're like, what are we going to let this guy make a movie for? Yeah, I, I was. Uh, I interviewed Susan Rogers, uh-huh. who's uh, the engineer for Purple Rain. Oh wow! And she was mentioning that in the interview, and she was saying like the balls of Warner Brothers to allow this twenty-four-year-old kid, yeah, to that, make a movie. I know who'd never made a movie. I could, you were, were you at Warner Brothers at this time? I was right before I got there. You know, it was. Uh, I got there in eighty-six, and I think Purple Rain was probably eighty-four. Eighty-four, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, he was on fire. When I got there, it was funny because he's very shy. So uh, the first thing you, when you get to Warner Brothers, like, well, you know, if you see Prince, don't speak to him. It's not that he's not friendly, but he's just shy. So you'd see Prince walking down the hall and he wouldn't, you wouldn't make eye, and they said, don't even look at him. So he wouldn't make eye contact with you. But when you'd walk by him, he knew you were there. And he'd hold one hand up and just kind of do a little sideways wave at you. <laughs> but, you know, you, just, you didn't look, you didn't say hi. You didn't, you just didn't do it because he was so shy. Yeah. I heard a great story once. He was, uh, I think it was around the time of that song Kiss. And uh, one of the main guys at Warner Brothers, you know, they're having a meeting with Prince. And they were talking to him about maybe doing a different mix of it. And Prince, you know, dressed like Prince. And these these uh, executives dressed like, you know, 1960s college students, you know, button down shirts. And Prince just said, you know, I don't want anybody who dresses like you telling me how my music should sound. <laughs> I thought, you know, that's wise. I know. And he was right. That's wise. I mean, an artist like Prince, how can you even think you can talk to him about how he should sound? Exactly. I mean, I think the reason I'd heard that Warner Brothers was able to sign him is they said he could produce himself. Mm. And then, you know, everybody else like, I will stick you with, I think the talk was of Maurice White or, you know, like a real producers because that's what labels did. But Prince was like, I produce myself, man. And, And that was it. Wow. And the other thing I heard that just really blew my mind, this, this came out after he passed, was uh, when he played the first album for the Warner staff, and uh, he said, don't make me black. Mm. He knew not to be put into the black music department because, you know, music departments were segregated then by terms of what they promoted, you know, the black artists. And also got the, the black artists got less budget. That's right. And he knew, and he knew that his music wasn't just for black people. I mean, Prince was like, I don't know what Prince was, but he, he was even beyond a rock and roller. I remember seeing him. I got to go see him. I think it was 1980 here. He played a roller rink in LA called uh, Flippers. And he just liked to do stuff like that. He'd already been booed off the stage when he opened for the Rolling Stones at the Coliseum. Wow. He'd been, you know, booed. The, the fans that's, just, that's they just weren't open about. to it. I know. I remember going to Flippers that night and seeing him. I think he was wearing fishnet, fishnet hose and some other skimpy outfit. I just thought like, this guy's on his own trip, man. This is this is going to be too much. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Wow. And then that was right around when he started exploding. Because at first, I don't think his first album really made that big a dent in sales, but all the press knew that this was different. You know, this was like totally from a different era. Something new had started. That's the most intriguing thing about music. When something new starts, looking back, you go like, wow, did we know? I, I remember seeing the Ramones in 76, and I go like, man, it's all different now. Yeah, these saw, guys are heavy, yeah. I saw the Sex Pistols on their one tour, and one of the wildest nights of my life, and I just went like, I mean, when it's, when it's a... A compliment to spit on an artist things have changed well you know i look at a lot of it like sports mm -hmm. music and sports are a, a lot very much aligned mm -hmm. where you have certain athletes that come along let's say for instance in basketball it transformed the way the game is played yes so you have right. you know whether it's you know a, a, a magic johnson being a a six eight point guard running the floor mm -hmm. right or a michael jordan who was like an assassin you know, at a mm -hmm. two, three guard position. And then you mm -hmm. have a LeBron James who's right, who can play every single position. And then you have descendants. That's right. right? Who are players who come after that. Influenced by that. It's exactly right. like music. Like, you know, Elvis took uh, black blues and country and put it together. And after him, a lot of people tried to do that. And yep. then the Beatles came along, changed all that. And the Grateful Dead and the psychedelic bands. It's just music is such a wonderful continuum of what human life is all about, which is change. And the people that fall by the wayside in the music business and probably in life itself are the ones who can't adapt to change or let change be. I mean, I was always hurt when I'd be in a, a meeting of, of a, at the record labels and go like, you know, this is just so different. I mean, we could never sell this, but you know, that's the job, man, to find the different things that are great and then help the artist find a way to take it to an audience. Mm. And so many great, great artists. I mean, it's almost, Sometimes it was kind of heartbreaking when I'd go to the 99 cent bins of record stores and I'd see all the bands I'd worked with that just, you know, didn't, didn't get there. And you'd go like, God, these guys were so wonderful and so sometimes ahead of their time, but just didn't connect. What's what timing is everything. Timing is everything. You know, it's the number it's, it's like timing, like having it together enough to be great and then be at the right time. Yeah. 100%. 100%. That, that is truly what the music business is in a nutshell. That's, I mean, that's why I think you have, yes, you know, Michael Jackson and Prince were amazing artists, mm -hmm. but I think it was also just the timing, mm -hmm. the, the timing of, you know, the music video, mm -hmm. right? The timing. The song. Was the, it the right song right then? The right song. Right. You know, at that time. Also, too, the music business in the 19, if I'm not mistaken, in the 1980s beginning was at its lowest point, right? you know? It kind of fallen apart a little bit, you know, yeah. because the big sort of mega bands of the 70s had had, you know, kind of just peaked. And so that's why New Wave was so important, because it was a lot of great bands, not all of which really made it, but they changed the direction of music. And, you know, you could make it yourself. 
you didn't need monstrous studios or million dollar budgets to make a record you know if you're talking heads you go in there the first record with three people and probably like a four track machine and make genius music because the music is that good right it really is people say well how do you make it i said really you got to have the most amazing music in the world you know if you don't have that you might get lucky on a song or two but if you have that inside you and can express it somehow you're going to get to where you need to be you know and then stay true to yourself I, all my years working with lou reed he said i said lou man you never gave up how did you stick to your guns all these years because he had some very up and down years he goes like he called me billy b he said billy b i don't listen to anybody <laughs> and he didn't i mean that he wasn't trying to denigrate anyone it's just you know all the people giving him advice over the years well well I, I, it's important that you know the the only person that knows you is you that's right and th th it's because it I think people listen to other people's advice, uh -huh. but at the end of the day, what you see yourself as right. is what you are. Right. No one can define that. When you listen to too many people, it can mess up the artistry. Mm -hmm. I think that happened some in the 90s, you know, when some eras of, of music just became like the producer and the hit songwriters, you know, they'd find like a voice who was, was like almost just a vessel. I mean, the obvious thing is Millie Vanilli. It wasn't even their voices. No. It was just so put on, but. You know, you got to pass the smell test with me, man. I know I can hear something and know that, you know, even if I don't like it personally, you can hear that real artistic expression of somebody trying to share their soul with another person. And that's where it all starts. You know, that's, I think that's why I connected with Elvis on Hound Dog, man. I thought he was singing that to me. Mm. <laughs> and it just made me go like, my hair stood up. And all the great music, you know, you can look, you can, you can feel inside when it gets to you. And that's, that's where I start, you know, from there, then you got to figure out what you can do. But if it doesn't do that right at the start, then kind of what's the point? Uh, how, how did you, um, what's the next move for you after being a publicist at Warner Brothers? Uh, I did that for, I was at Warner's until 2006. And, uh, so, you know, by then late nineties, early two thousands, the Napster free music thing had really, it kind of taken the wind out of our sails a little bit. And, and you know what? 9-11 too. I mean, there was a period Napster had kind of devastated the sales picture and then 9-11, you know, really kind of broke a lot of our hearts on that front. Just like, oh, what's going on? And I think it's just, we, we lost some of our optimism about how life was going to grow into like this wonderful thing. We became fearful mm. and fear's the killer. And we started, you know, kind of playing with scared money and, People just sort of hunkered in and didn't really have the joy on their face anymore. Yeah. How, how did Napster, you know, become a juggernaut in, in your day-to-day -day work at the label? You know, it didn't affect us at all. We were like full speed ahead with the artists we signed and how we tried to promote them and everything. But we just started noticing they were very popular. They had big crowds when they toured, but we quit selling records because you didn't have to buy the song anymore. And it didn't really change us. I mean, there wasn't such a thing as like a Napster-based artist. It just became this sort of red flag is like, now what do we do? And the thing that we, that the record business did that I really argued against, you know, I had no clout to change anything. We started raising the price of the CD. Oh my, oh. And I, I, I remember a meeting where somebody was, you know, moaning about our sales and Napster and free. And they would say, well, just, you know, we'll charge 1998 for the new Madonna and make it up on the price point as opposed to the popular. I just went like, that's the craziest thing I've ever no. heard. I, I'll never forget this. I'm a huge John Mayer fan. Yeah. I'll never forget being 16 years old and going to buy John Mayer Heavier Things, a 10-song album. This It was 1998. 
for a 10 song album, a great album. The Not- record labels became the enemy. Yeah. They, they they did. And you know, the only one who stood up to that truly then at the that time was Tom Petty. He told his label, if you raise the price of this new album, you can't put it out. And they were going to sue him and threaten him and all that. He did not change. And it, it sort of woke him up a little bit where they didn't keep raising it. But in the economics of making a record, they should have been selling CDs for five ninety eight. Yeah. They, didn't, they, they were cheaper to make than vinyl. You know, but remember when CDs started being sold, they were more than, they cost more than vinyl because guess what? People would pay it. And I always thought the label, they go like, you know, you're our friends. Consumers, you're our friends. We're going to make a deal now. You can buy our records for half of what we were charging. I think we would, would have been able to keep the kids because that's really who you're trying to sell the mega records to longer than we did. But, you know, once the free came in and records became even more expensive, record labels never got that audience back because conglomerates that weren't music companies started buying all the labels. So like when then the Time Warner thing, they were a movie company, they bought us and then AOL somehow bought Time Warner. That's one of the biggest trickeries I've ever heard in my life. You know, an online service owns Warner Brothers movies, Warner Brothers records, owns everything. I go, I remember the man who ran uh, AOL, Steve Case, gave us, you know, a pep talk once. And I thought, oh, wait a minute, this guy started selling pizzas. Now he's running a company that really is kind of like a dial up. What in the world does he know about anything concerning art? Yeah. And he didn't. Obviously he didn't, you know, but, you know, then it was almost over and just the, the, everything started to collapse a little bit. And I don't think the companies that were started by music and business visionaries ever the visionaries part kind of left the business. I mean, the head of Warner brothers records was a man named Mo Austin who started working for Frank Sinatra, got a label. The label was bought by Warner. So it was like Warner brothers reprise records. And he, not only did he know how to treat people, but he knew enough to, you know, find the A and R people who know what they're doing and let them do that. Find the publicity. I don't have to tell you everything. I'm just going to find people I trust. And it was all, especially Warner Records, was built on just a whole level of trust that I always thought was the key to the label because in all my years there, nobody ever told me anything what to do. They trusted me to know what to do. And when the, it started to change was when like people came in who didn't really respect the music, so they thought it was all about the business. It was never all about the business. It was all about the music. If you had great music, you could sell enough of that to make a good living. My, uh, the president of Warner's Records used to tell me, uh, his name is Lenny Warnicker. He's one of the, just, I think the, one of the greatest unsung heroes of the record business. He said, Bill, you have to have money bands and art bands. Money bands to sell so you have enough money to also support the art bands so the great artists will want to be on your label. Mm. You know, mm. guys like Neil Young and people like that would attract the new artist to the label. You know, Neil Young sold tons of records, but also bands would go like, he's on Warner Brothers. We want to be on Warner Brothers because they treat him right. Right. Maybe they'll treat us right. Right, right. But I heard so many artists over the years that we want to be on the, the label that, you know, had the Grateful Dead or had Jimi Hendrix or those bands because they knew that any label that could take care of those artists was probably a good group of people. You know? I, I have a question too, uh, mm-hmm. going back to, you know, going back in the, the dollar bin stack. Um, who was a band from that era that you were working with that you thought should have gotten more just do? Well, that's a good question. Um, I always thought there, there were several of those, but there was a band at Slash called the Del Fuegos that was a great band. 
just never quite broke through. They might've had a small, and then when I got to Warner's, God, for a few years, it was the Flaming Lips. They kind of finally broke through, but you know, bands like that who really approached it from the artistic side, the replacements for years could hardly give records away. And they finally had a hit single, but then success broke them up. Some bands can't handle success because they're used to not being successful. So, and you know, money brings a lot of issues that uh, sometimes people can't deal with. But I would, I would say in uh, my early, there was a band from the sixties. I love probably my favorite band of all time called the 13th floor elevators who never even got heard. But I always thought, that they were the American band that should have been at the very top. And so let's say uh, you left Warner 2006. What was your next step? Uh, uh, for several years at Warner's, I'd been working with Neil Young. So he found out I was leaving and his manager called me up, Elliot Roberts, you know, an infamous manager who started his first client was Joni Mitchell and the second client was Neil Young. Okay. For, for 50 years. Okay. Then he managed Bob Dylan for a while. Okay. He managed Tom Petty. And, <laughs> so anyway, Elliot's a He's uh, got an eye for for talent. Quite, yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> artist trusted. He said he never signed a contract with an artist. He said, you know, if if it's a piece of paper it's about that that means it's not meant to be. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, he called me and said you want to go to work for Neil and I go like, well what am I going to do? And he goes like, well, we'll find something. So I went to work, you know, doing Neil's press, but also when you're around Neil Young, he's got so many just overflowing ideas that there's always something to do at that. Right after I went to work for him, uh, he started, uh, with another kind of visionary engineer creating what he called the link volt, which was a 1959 Lincoln powered by electric batteries. Oh, wow. So we started the first working, Tesla. Yeah. Yeah. He, we started working on that and we're going to make a movie about it, you know, and sometimes the things with Neil, you know, don't always go all the way, but you're never bored. And then uh, we started an online newspaper called the Neil Young Times, <laughs> NYT. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> he nice. still got going. And then he got into, you know, he's always been the number one musician, I feel, who fights the fight for good sound, you know, like audio sound. Mm -hmm. So he invented this uh, sound system called Pono that he engineered. He had an engineer make a Pono player that plays true stereo sound. And, you know, to go up against uh, Apple and things like that, that's a hard fight to win. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so the Pono thing started. And, and that's when I thought like, well, you know, I love all this, but I'm really like a record music guy. And so the car and the Pono and this and that, I got an offer from uh, Vanguard Records to be an A&R guy, which I'd never been. You know, I'd, I'd made a lot of records or been involved in, you know, getting artists signed or making some tribute records at Warner Brothers, but I'd never been the guy that went out to try to look for artists to sign. So Vanguard Records made me an offer to come be an A&R person. I thought like, you know, I guess, I don't know, I guess I was 59 then, whatever it was. But I thought like, you know, it's a little old to be getting into A&R, but hey, I feel like I'm 20 still, so I'll do it. Yeah. And I got over there and then I was an A&R guy for three or four years and then they sold the Concord music and I got a job doing A&R for Concord. Wow. So for, I don't know, from 09 to... Yeah, for about seven years, I was an A&R guy, and it was so great. You know, I really got to to find the artists I wanted to sign. Hard getting them signed, but the ones that I did, then going in and watching them and hopefully participating in the making of their albums. You know, just with my opinions about how things were going. Is um, you're almost like the, like the, the guy at the restaurant who was like the line cook. Yeah. And then he became like the sous chef. Yeah, I, I did then, in a way. Then he was like, you know what, uh I kind of want to be a manager in front of the house. <laughs> yeah. Screw it. I'll just like buy the restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> Still waiting to do that. But, uh, you know, I, and, and, and really the, the true key to my just still loving all this, 
I, I always worked at labels that I could respect. You know, there's a couple, and during my years at Warner Brothers, you know, you'd always try, other labels would try to poach you, you know, because they would know, well, he's a good publicist. Let's try to get him. And there's a couple labels that actually said, yeah, I'll, I'll go over to you. You know, the money looked good. And like, it'd be like, this is such a bad example of some of my flaws is, you know, like a week before I start the job I said I'd take, I'd call them up and go like, you know, it's just not me. And there were labels I can look back on and go like, I didn't belong there. You know, I'm not like this forceful, egomaniacal honcho. I'm like, I'm like stealth. You know, I like to work sort of behind the scenes, uh, get in with the artist and do that. But I, I'm not really, you know, I'm not like a publicity hound. And I felt like that's kind of what they wanted. And I bailed on them, both of them. And it probably hurt, you know, maybe my advancement through the ranks, but I found at Warner Brothers, I found a place I loved. Right. I loved it. I would love going to work there every single day, man. Even when it started getting a little wanky with uh, the chairman position getting uh, sold out. I, I I never let the business side of it bother me, man, because I was always like, I like the artists. You know, I'm stick. I, I just love the artist I worked with. And my coworkers at Warner Brothers were cool. So what's better than that? Well, I think, you know, fit is always very, very important. Mm -hmm. It's almost like the money is like sex right in a relationship right it like ain't forever it, right if the sex keeps you it's right. not going to be a good relationship that's right that's right and it's like you have to want to be there every day and do your best because that's the only way you can show your respect for the company and the other people if you do your best you never have to look back and you mm. never have to worry about anything you know and let's face it you know record business only about 60 70 percent of albums succeed so you're in a business that's sort of like failure based, right? but just, you have to have the strength to not let that hurt you. The hardest thing, Lou Reed told me a great thing once he, he was going to put out a record and called the Raven, you know, based on Edgar Allan Poe poetry. Mm -hmm. And it looked like it was going to be a tough sell. I mean, Steve Buscemi was on it. Willem Dafoe. It was like, had all these actors doing Poe music and, and some incredible music from Lou. And he's like, you know, Billy, I'm just not going to put it out. You know, I'm just not going to put it out, man. Nobody's going to understand this. And they go, Lou, if you don't put this out, it's going to sit in a studio somewhere on a computer drive and you're the rest of your life, you're going to go like, God, I wish I'd put that record out. I said, if you put it out and try, you'll know what's going to happen. And he said, you know, but watching one of your records fail is like watching someone murder one of your children. Mm. And I just went like, wow, man, that's, that's the level of love Lou has for what he's doing. And I always remember that, like, it just made me try harder for the artists because it was painful to watch great albums and artists not succeed. But like I said, if 60, 70% of what you're releasing is a failure, doesn't sell, you're in that business where chances are it might not be successful. Mm. And that's the hard thing in life. It's like, I think kind of like the life we're living now. I mean, we wake up every day and, you're like, what in the world is going on? But you can't look down. You know, we just have to go forward with the hope that the next thing's going to be okay or somehow all this is going to work out. It's like faith. You know, it's like, I think life is faith-driven. Whatever your faith is, it's just, it's going to be okay. How can you think otherwise? And the record business now is a very challenged business, but you have to think it's going to be okay. Somehow, some way. Yeah. Maybe it's like you said, something's coming that we don't know what's coming now. 
you know, a delivery system or something different that happens in the technology. But one thing we know, something is always coming. It's coming. And you know what? It's up to us to adapt and, and be ready for you it. You cannot give up. I know the lowest points of my life, you know, I had some issues where it's like, oh my God, what have I done? Or how am I going to get out of this? And I just went like, you don't know, but something's going to happen. Mm. And if you live that way, I think it kind of works out that way. And if you don't, it might not work out at all. <laughs> <laughs> hey. There is no odds in thinking anything else. That's what you got to think. That's the only way to think. But it's the hardest thing to learn in life is like, it's all going to be okay somehow. And what are you doing now? Uh, well, I wrote a book for the Smithsonian Books. Uh, so I promoted that for a few months. And a uh, couple of things I'm doing now, I'm uh, working at Steel Wool Entertainment, which Kevin Morrow has signed an incredible group of artists. And I'm trying to help him find some more. Uh, I'm writing another book. And uh, that's going to be pretty interesting once i can tell you what it is i can't quite yet but what's the first book called uh smithsonian rock and roll live and unseen okay so, so, yeah yeah so tell me about the book what's it about it's a cool book uh the smithsonian had an idea where they were going to ask all the people in the world to, to submit the pictures they'd taken over the years of their favorite music just fans so over four thousand pictures were uploaded to the smithsonian website I went through all the pictures, chose 250 photos that illustrate. The, fan, uh, the fans took. The fans took. Wow. Almost all of them are fan-sourced pictures. And we took those and we whittled down the list of artists to 140. So, And I wrote an essay about 140 artists, uh, all in the book. And, and most of the pictures haven't been seen before. There's wow. a few that you know had been seen because you know a couple of artists we had to put in the book, but we couldn't find any pictures of them. Like Elvis, we couldn't find any fan pictures because back in the 50s, you know, the period, right? fans didn't have cameras, cameras they took like the that. shows. Right. I remember I had a little brownie camera, but if you got two feet from the subject, you got like a black <laughs> piece of film, you know? So there's a few that we had, but for the Elvis, I found a man uh, in Texas who'd bought a, a whole library of photos from uh, a photographer in Waco, Texas in the 50s, and he met the photographer at the dump where he's getting ready to throw all his negatives away. So he bought them from the guys like Elvis and Jimmy Reed, Little Richard, you know, just these incredible pictures. So we really went out of our way. That's why the book is subtitled Live and Unseen. Because mm. so many of these pictures, a lot of them are live, but most of them haven't been seen. So that was kind of the lure of the book. So I wrote that and uh, it's really, I never thought I'd get to write a book, but here again is a sort of synchronicity. A man I used to work with was the tour manager for the group, The Flaming Lips. We got to be friends, you know, because I've worked with the Flaming Lips. And here, all these years later, now he's the director of marketing at Smithsonian Books. Wow. So from that, because see connection, I tell young people, I say, look, man, just be cool to everybody. You know, not that so much they're going to do something for you later, but you never have to worry about it. And then, you know, if you're cool, they'll come back and figure out, well, maybe that guy's all right. You know, let's get him to write this book. Yeah. I'm sure there's a way better writers than me, but... He probably thought like, well, you know, he loved music and he's saying that, you know, he had a pulse. Let's he's see what chill. he's doing. Let's go get him, man. Because, you know, you <laughs> don't want to have a, work with, you don't work with jerks, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to uh, be able to start this book, uh, the next book. It's, it's with a person that's had kind of an up and down life. Uh, and I really want to be able to write a book showing how she got through all of this mm. in, in the music. And uh, I think that'll be good. And I'm writing... Uh, a movie about a, an incredible artist uh, that was kind of unknown, but probably the, the, the greatest unknown artist I've ever uh, met named Jerry Williams. He was a songwriter and singer from Texas who, you know, had this 
insanely interesting life. Wow. And, uh, you know, and that, that, those are the small stories that people don't know to me are always the biggest ones that capture my imagination. You know, that's kind of why I'm a fan of the underdog, you know, because they fight so hard to live a life that's true to themselves. And sometimes the world doesn't cooperate. But again, like we said, they don't give up. There we are. You know, Jerry Williams died in 2005 and, uh, you know, starting in, in the eighties, he started writing songs for huge song, huge hit songs for other people, but he always wanted to be the artist himself. And, uh, he never quite got that opportunity. And now for, for young folks, mm -hmm. uh, you've seen a lot of uh, things change from mm -hmm. in the industry, from the sixties, the seventies, the eighties, nineties, two thousands to, to now, you know, what advice do you have for people who are looking to get into the music business? Number one for look people looking to break in, I'd say, find the thing you love to do the most and you'd probably do it even if you didn't get paid to do it. Because the thing that's going to really create your reputation is what you're best at. So find that if it's a writer, if it's a tour manager, if it's a sound person, if it's a publicist, you know, just start doing it on the, any level you can start doing it on and then just keep at it. But, but, along with really having the talent and the dedication, like I said, treat people right, you know, be good to people, you know, do it because they're human beings. And, uh, no matter who they are, what issues you might have, look at their positive side and treat them from that. Cause you know, I, I see a lot of kids get into it and before you know it, you know, they're bad rapping their boss or, you know, the label they work for or the music they've got. And I go like, man, negativity. I'll tell you an interesting story. Here's, here's one of the best stories I have from my career. And I think it was about 89, I got to sit down with George Harrison and talk to him about, somebody wanted me to write an ad about his new record, so we sat down and started talking. And on the cover of that record was the guitar he played in the Beatles. And we started talking about that guitar, and his new record at that time was called uh, Nine Lives. And he said, well, you know, that guitar, I lost it for decades he said i gave it to a man named klaus vorman who then gave it he split up from his wife and his wife kept it for years and she eventually gave it back to me i said man that's a fascinating story we should tell that story to the press like your beetle guitar went around the world and came back to you and inspired this new record which is kind of beetlesque he goes like oh we could never tell that and i go like why he goes like well they got divorced and divorce is a negative. And he just looked at me and said, no negatives. I feel like, wow, man. Like, mm. here's probably one of the most famous musicians who ever lived and a great musician, but he was of a spiritual nature where he did not deal in negatives. And I just walked away that day and thought like, wow, man, that's something to always remember. You know, learn from George Harrison. Mm. He just, that's funny because that day I was talking to him He'd walked by my office the night before and uh, I'd never met him. And he walked in my office and he said, where's Mo Austin's office, the chairman? So you go down there and write. I looked at him. And I thought he's the new cleaning guy. He looks so scruffy and kind of in just real rumply clothes. And I thought like, well, that's probably the new guy that comes in at night and cleans. And the next day I said, George, I think we met last night. You came by my office. And I said, he said, yeah, I remember. You told me where Mo's office was. And I said, well, I didn't recognize you last night. And he said, well, last night I wasn't a Beatle. <laughs> <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> like, you know, 
What more famous band ever lived? Can you imagine being a Beatle in the way the world yeah. worshipped you? I mean, yeah. I mean, has there ever been anybody else other bigger than a Beatle? Michael Jackson. Could be, yeah. You're right. And you know, poor Michael, you know. Elvis. Elvis. The, but like individual. In, yeah. But like in, in the band. In a collection? No. I know. And I thought like, oh, that's another thing, man. He was, you know, he, he said, I put on the clothes, I become a Beatle. But when I'm not, you know, I'm George Harrison. Wow. I said, wow. But when he said no negatives, I always think of that. Whenever I get in a situation where, you know, I might be drifting towards the dark side, I go like, what did George say, man? No negatives. You can live life like that. I can tell from you that, you know, that's the way you approach life. You're doing something you dig. You're spreading the word. And man, you hit the jackpot. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know? I, I, I try to be. Yeah, man. No, you, know, you, you got a light, man. You got a light that comes out of you. And that's really what, that's the people that make life so cool. You know what? I, I think with the, from being, um, you know, first an artist, mm -hmm. and I guess now I'm stepping into like more of a journalism yeah. uh, type of role, is that there's zero ego that comes along with being a fan. Right. That's right. Like there's so much ego that comes along with, you know, it's so, so like self serving. Yes. Yeah. Being an artist, mm -hmm. uh, even when it's like, listen to my music, yeah. listen to my music, I know. listen to my music. I know. Uh, versus being on the opposite side of just being a fan. And when you're just being a fan, things come a lot easier. Oh, yeah. You're way more inquisitive. You're asking more questions. Like you're making like lifelong connections with people. Because the element of rejection is not in that. Yes. Being an artist, I, I tell artists like, just, just, you're in the rejection business at the start and just, don't let it hurt. I think you're in the rejection soul. business the, the entire career. You pretty are, pretty much are. Yeah. You know, Prince getting told like, well, you got to remix that. Track. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and, and that's when you got to stand up. You know, strength, artists, no matter, are just employees, new people in the business, you got to have an inner strength and the courage to express it in a positive way. You know, never, it's like Lou said, don't let anybody tell you anything. Now that's the extreme because that's the way he rolled. But, you know, stand up for what you believe in, but don't make it a battle, mm. you know, because really I don't think fighting is the way to go. I'm a, I'm a, I always tell people I'm a peace loving plant eater, man. Mm. You know, just try to be cool if you can, because nobody likes to fight. You know, sometimes you have to, you have to dig in and really stand up for something that's wrong, but you know, fighting is not the way to live. If you, if there's, there's better ways to live, let's just put it that way. Well, Bill Bentley, man, I appreciate you being oh, on man. the show, my brother. Oh my gosh, it's, this is it's, so much fun. You're a cool dude. <laughs> I tell you, you got you got Even if I dress like a college guy. No, no, no. You got you got Michael Douglas vibes. You got <laughs> okay. the cool hair, the cool glasses. I appreciate you, brother. Oh man, I, I, it's a joy to meet you and do this. And uh, you know, man, I think you might have changed my life because I'm going to try to do this somehow more. Oh, you should definitely have a podcast because uh, I just I love talking about music and you know, knock on wood. My brain's still working. Yeah, uh, you're, you're sharper than me, that's for sure. <laughs> Thank you very much. Appreciate, appreciate you, brother. It, Thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode of the Silent Giants podcast and to our special guest, Bill Bentley, for stopping through the show. Special thank you to the Silent Giants behind this episode of the Silent Giants podcast. This episode has been mixed by Mark Bird. Be sure to follow Mark on Instagram, and you can get to that by the link in the description. Also, thank you so much to Katie Ross for making this interview possible. So, I'm your host, Corey Cambridge, signing off. Till next time.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 